This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Professor Michael Berger, Executive Director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change at Columbia Law School, the Trump administration's efforts to unwind the nation's environmental regulatory rules, and the status of climate crisis-related litigation. Professor Berger, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Professor Berger's bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, to state the obvious, we interact with the environment constantly. As a result, we are exposed to harmful animal-borne germs like viruses, bacteria, parasites, or so-called zoonotic diseases. Scientists estimate more than six out of every ten known infectious diseases and three out of four new or emerging infectious diseases come from animals. Think dengue, malaria, rabies, COVID-19. According to the National Academy of Sciences, the environment is responsible for 30% of premature deaths, a far higher percentage than health care prevents. This explains why minority communities face higher COVID-19-related mortality, upwards of three times. Their immune systems have already been compromised by a degraded environment, for example, poor air quality. Despite formally recognizing the adverse effects the environment has on our health, via, for example, environmental impact statements, the Trump administration has worked aggressively to gut the nation's environmental protections. According to the Sabin Center, the administration has unwound or intends to unwind approximately 100 environmental regulations, ranging from power plant and car and truck CO2 emissions, mercury and hydrofluorocarbon emissions, rules protecting wetlands from oil and gas leasing, rules regarding pesticide use, drilling, fracking, and coal leasing rules, offshore oil and gas drilling rules, etc., Concerning the climate crisis, listeners may recall my having discussed research published in 2016 that concluded the adverse health effects resulting from the healthcare industry's greenhouse gas or carbon emissions are responsible for upwards of nearly 100,000 deaths annually in the U.S. alone. With me again to discuss the administration's attack on environmental regulations in the Sabin Center's Michael Berger. So with that, Professor Berger, let me start by asking if you can briefly describe the Sabin Center's work? Sure. Um, the Sabin Center is a think and do tank housed at Columbia Law School. We focus on climate change law across the board, meaning we look at both mitigation related issues, how to go about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, as well as adaptation issues, how to respond to climate change impacts that are already happening and that will uh, only increase in intensity and frequency over time. Um, we are not a policy shop, so we don't do policy analysis. We're really a team of lawyers that focus very much on the on the legal aspects of climate policy. Uh, and we do this at all scales of government, from the, from the local to the global. Um, we have a number of different things that we do. Uh, on the think side of our think and do tank, uh, we do what think tanks generally do. We produce uh, original research and writing on a range of climate law related topics. Uh, we also produce um, and put up on our website free for public use a number of different resources 
um, for researchers, lawyers, policy practitioners, students, and others. Uh, these include our climate change litigation databases, both U.S. and non-U.S., uh, our silencing science tracker, our climate deregulation tracker, which we launched on Inauguration Day in 2017, um, our legal pathways to deep decarbonization database, which includes um, hundreds of model laws uh, set up for governments at all scales to adopt uh, to achieve deep decarbonization, and a number of other tools. On the do side of our Think and Do Tank, um, we engage actively with partners um, including international organizations, uh, domestic and, and international NGOs, uh, political staffers uh, and representatives, uh, other academic institutions um, and others uh, to leverage our expertise to have an impact on the real world. So in this regard, we submit comment letters on environmental impact statements and proposed regulations. We file amicus briefs uh, on behalf of scientists and uh, coalitions of cities and others in big climate cases. Um, and we regularly seek to, to influence uh, and inform public decision making around climate law and policy. So you're busy. <laughs> Yeah, we have our we have our hands full, especially these days. Yes. Okay. So let's go to these days. Uh, so my next question. Let's get in the meat of this. Uh, although it would take hours to detail the administration's assault on the environment, let's focus on air quality, since among other things, accounts for uh, seven million deaths worldwide, or degraded air quality. So uh, let's focus moreover again on this subject. So what's the administration's policy towards, amongst other issues? Uh, power plant emissions. This was the Obama administration's clean power plan, auto tailpipe, and particularly as well, of course, methane emissions, which is a much more potent uh, greenhouse gas. So I think it's it's worth going back to the beginning of the administration and even the, and the campaign that led up to it, uh, and recognizing that the, that that the Trump administration. Uh, has throughout its duration been focused on a systematic all-out attack on environmental law. Um, it has, for the last three and a half years, set about the, uh, the, the, the process of delaying, then seeking to repeal, then seeking to replace um, climate and environmental protections across the board. Uh, and so what we've seen in the climate space uh, is the most importantly, the effort to uh, repeal and then replace the clean power plan with the Affordable Clean Energy Act uh, or the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, um, the effort to repeal and replace the fuel efficiency and greenhouse gas emission standards for motor vehicles, um, as well as uh, a number of other emissions standards for the oil and gas industry, for landfills um, and, um, and in other areas. Um, but it's not just in the climate regulation space that this administration is having an adverse effect on human health and the environment. Uh, it is also in April, it finalized the mercury and air toxics rule, uh, which weakens standards for toxic air pollutants from power plants. Uh, it has also recently refused to increase the national ambient air quality standards for particulate matter, uh, which to put that in plain language, uh, they're deciding to keep soot levels where they are, despite the, the known hazards they pose mm -hmm. to um, many populations, including the most vulnerable populations. Um, 
And, um, you know, these changes from the uh, ACE rule to the fuel efficiency standards to the MATS rule to the to the to the PM uh, standards, EPA, by its own analysis, knows that these efforts will increase deaths and illness in America, in addition to slowing uh, or halting any efforts to address climate change uh, more broadly. Um, nonetheless, it's seeking to go ahead and, and put these rules on the books. Importantly, all of these are being challenged in court, uh, and because they fundamentally lack a basis in science uh, and in most, if not all, instances run counter to EPA's statutory mandate to protect human health and the environment. Uh, my, my own uh, analysis is that they, they ought to fail in court, though. We'll see how that goes. Okay, thank you. Let me, let me just ask, since there are so many of these, and it, it is, yeah. it is uh, to say the least, the, the quantity uh, is almost mind-numbing. I, I would imagine uh, the power plant matter is probably the most significant. I did mention methane. What, what's your sense of what's the worst of these? <laughs> They're all bad. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, on, the, on the one hand, the MATS rule, the mercury and air toxics rule, this is just from a, a, a pure common sense point of view. They're, they're weakening standards, um, knowing, that the, knowing that the result is going to be um, – greater quantities of toxic air pollution. They also know that this is gonna have very significant adverse health effects beyond toxics. One of the big effects of the, of the mercury and air toxics rule, and one of the, the rationales for the mercury rule that the Obama administration had produced was that it would have multi, many co-benefits um, by reducing other air pollutants in addition to mercury. Um, there would be public health benefits um, that far outweighed uh, any any costs that this would impose on industry by seeking to fundamentally reconfigure the way that the government uh, uh, analyzes costs and benefits of fed federal rulemaking, uh, the EPA sought to is, is seeking to do away with any analysis of these co-benefits, um, and and as a result, uh, tilts the scales in favor of of decreased regulation. So I think that on, on the one hand, that's, that's bad because uh, it has something of the, of the air of evil about it. Um, the, um, the, the, both the, the ACE rule and the fuel standards for the climate, um, these are major steps backwards. Um, the ACE rule will have almost no uh, effect on greenhouse gas emissions coming from existing power plants. And the fuel efficiency standard similarly will have almost no effect on decreasing uh, greenhouse gas mm -hmm. emissions from motor vehicles. So from a climate standpoint, um, both of these actions are highly significant. The rules that were in place were designed to achieve significant um, reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, not significant enough to be consist fully consistent with a 1.5 degree or two degree target, but at least setting us on a pathway towards um, achieving that ultimate mid-century goal of, of net zero carbon emissions. Um, this sets us way back. Uh, and as, as, as we all know, we have a limited period of time at this point right. to achieve these deep reductions. Um, you know, by the IPCC's estimate, we have till 2030 to basically have um, our emissions. And this will, at the very least, delay 
uh, efforts to reduce emissions from our largest sources in the short term. Okay, thank you. Let me, let me go to, there are any number of uh, more, say, process rules. Uh, the EPA is forwarding. I'll name uh, four. Uh, feel free to address any of these or others, but there's a recent EPA-issued uh, supplemental notice as a follow-up to a 18 proposed rule that would restrict the use of scientific research. Uh, the EPA has also recently announced a, a temporary policy termed, quote-unquote, exercise enforcement discretion. That's code for we'll pick and choose when and if we want to enforce EPA regulations. Uh, there are others concerning rolling back energy efficiency standards, say for refrigerators, and uh, other regulations concerning restricting public access to climate data. So can you comment on a few of these or others that are more on the process uh, realm relative to how EPA forwards its, its um, work? Sure. I mean, the, uh, I'll, let, me, let me start with the so-called strengthening transparency and regulatory science rule, the, the rule that the proposed rule that would uh, prevent EPA from using particular public health studies um, that protect the anonymity of participants in these public health studies. Um, this has been uh, on the radar um, of certain um, uh, industry representatives and politicians for, for quite a while. Um, the, the idea that uh, one way of undermining public confidence in the science behind um, environmental regulations is to uh, claim that there's some problem with the fact that major public health studies, in order to respect privacy laws, keep the participants' names and certain data anonymous. Um, this doesn't prevent peer review uh, of these studies, and it doesn't prevent these uh, these studies from from being um, reassessed. Um, nonetheless, the the rule would prohibit EPA from using these studies. So, the effect of it is that it would eliminate from consideration uh, a large number of public health studies that demonstrate the adverse effects that air pollution and other forms of pollution can have on on human health. Um, the the EPA uh, is claiming that its authority to do this is premised uh, or based on the federal housekeeping statute, which is really intended to um, authorize procedural rules for agencies' internal affairs. Uh, as you might tell by the tone of my voice, I'm uh, more than a little bit skeptical about the legality um, uh, that that uh, of that maneuver, I don't. I, I, our our view at the Savings Center is that that statute does not actually provide the legal authority to adopt this particular measure. Uh, and beyond that, uh, there's no real justification for this for this rule. Uh, it seems to be premised in a long-running political um, argument uh, rather than in any actual scientific basis. Um, uh, touching briefly on the um, energy efficiency standards, uh, again the you know, federal statutes have long uh, authorized and required uh, the Department of Energy to issue certain energy efficiency standards for commercial and residential appliances. Um, it has been um, 
a heavily litigated area as DOE for more than 20 years has fallen behind um, schedule on issuing various standards. One way or the other, energy efficiency standards are a highly impactful way of uh, reducing both uh, conventional air pollutants as well as greenhouse gas emissions. In my own view, this is low-hanging fruit. There's there's no real reason that we should not be maximizing the efficiency of our appliances. It's a uh, it's a way to save money for consumers, uh, reduce overall costs for the economy, uh, achieve air quality improvements, and achieve climate improvements. Um, the decision to uh, roll back these standards and decrease the efficiency standards is simply consistent with the administration's larger effort to um, ultimately decrease industry costs and impose those uh, public health costs uh, on the taxpayers and citizens of the United States. Okay, thank you again. Let, let's let's go now specifically to uh, the climate crisis. Uh, listeners uh, may recall that uh, in early February, I interviewed a Juliana versus U.S. Uh, plaintiff attorney, Andrea Rogers, about the uh, Ninth Circuit's January decision, two to one in favor of the defendant, which is um, the U.S. government. You published uh, a very thoughtful piece, I thought, March 13th, regarding the Juliana decision in context of related court decisions worldwide. So I think it would be helpful if you can give an overview of where we are relative to cases, and I understand worldwide they number uh, approximately 1,500 uh, cases overview of cases worldwide relative to court decisions to date um, on um, protecting the climate, uh, cases brought by plaintiffs such as Juliana and her peers. Um, where are we um, in court decisions? Sure. I, th- I think that one one thing I'll note off the bat is that in regards to, to circle back briefly to the Trump administration's deregulatory efforts, as um, particularly in the environmental area, but also more broadly, um, the administration has a terrible record in court. Um, The Center for Policy Integrity at New York University maintains a a tracker of its own that is keeping tabs on uh, the outcomes of uh, court cases around environmental uh, rollbacks. And um, the vast majority of cases uh, are being won by opponents to the Trump administration's me- measures. That is to say, the Trump administration is losing. I think, I think its record is something like six and seventy-five. I'm not sure that's exactly right, but it's somewhere around there. So it, it keeps losing in court, and, and I think that um, you know, uh, an assessment of the the merits uh, of the current cases should have many of those cases losing as well. Um, but the Juliana case, of course, is is probably the, the most famous case in the United States these days. Um, this was a lawsuit that was brought by a group of youth plaintiffs against the Obama administration back in mm-hmm. 2015, mm-hmm. Uh, claiming that the federal government's uh, affirmative measures in setting standards and leasing public lands for fossil fuel uh, development, as well as its failure to take uh, adequate action in regards to climate change violated the youth plaintiffs' constitutional rights, as well as the government's obligations under the public trust doctrine. Um, the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, in a split decision, 
uh, ultimately determined that the plaintiffs do not have standing to bring mm-hmm. this lawsuit. And the, the, the rationale that the, the court relied on was that the uh, particular remedy that the plaintiffs have been seeking in that case, which is a uh, court-ordered government drawdown, plan for drawdown. That is, the, the plaintiffs have been seeking to have the court direct the federal government to develop a plan to draw down carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere um, to a um, level that is consistent with the science-based targets for a two-degree or 1.5-degree uh, I think that the complaint was a two-degree um, global warming scenario. That the, the the court concluded, or the the majority on the court concluded, that that particular remedy is simply beyond the court's power to order. Um, and so, because it cannot actually provide the redress that the plaintiffs are seeking, the plaintiffs don't have standing to bring the the lawsuit. Um, I view it as a very limited uh, and narrow, narrowly written decision uh, that is very much focused on the particular way in which the plaintiffs um, framed their the remedy that they're seeking. The the dissent in that case, of course, took a much different view and and um, looking clearly at the climate crisis, as the majority did as well, um, came to a different conclusion and said that the, that the court should have the authority to, to consider this case uh, or at least allow it to move forward to trial. Um, you know, so so that's a uh, th- that case is currently on appeal. Uh, they're seeking a, an on banc appeal, meaning that the full uh, bench at the Ninth Circuit would hear the case. Um, that case is consistent with uh, a number of other s- similar cases that rely on this notion of fundamental rights. Here in the U.S., uh, they were relying on substantive due process and this notion of the public trust doctrine. In cases in other countries, they're relying on similar notions of fundamental rights, whether they're inscribed in international human rights or in domestic constitutions. Um, And they're also relying on this similar notion of the public trust doctrine or um, a duty of care that's owed by the government. That is the government's obligation to protect the health, well-being, and welfare of its own citizens. Um, And these cases are popping up all around the world. Uh, famously, the, the Dutch courts mm-hmm. in, uh, have reached the decision that a case brought by uh, an organization known as Urgenda, um, the, the Dutch court affirmed the, well, ultimately held that the, the government does have a duty of care to its own citizens um, and that the European Convention on Human Rights does require the government to take more ambitious action on climate change. And the result of that case has been a number of dramatic actions over the last few months um, by the right. Dutch government to immediately reduce emissions. Uh, but there are other success stories out there. Uh, back in 2015, a, um, the, a court in Pakistan uh, responding to a lawsuit filed by a Pakistani farmer, uh, directed the, the government there to implement its own national climate policy. Um, the court there ordered the government to um, have ministries set up contact points for climate change and to submit particular action points uh, or points of action for the ministries to undertake, as well as for a, a government-wide climate change commission to be to be set up. Uh, a few years after that decision, um, 
more than two thirds of the of the necessary actions have been taken. So it's another instance where relying on constitutional rights, the right to life, the right to water, the right to health, um, an individual actually persuaded a court to force the government to to implement climate uh, its own climate plan. Uh, another case I'll just sort of flash on, uh, touch on quickly was uh, a case brought in Colombia. A number of years ago, uh, this was another youth filed plaint, uh, youth plaintiff case. So uh, some 20, more than 20 youth plaintiffs from across Colombia filed uh, a lawsuit against the government, uh, against the Ministry of Environment, seeking to force the government to develop a plan to stop deforestation because of its climate impacts, uh, as well as because of the rights of the Amazon forest. Uh, ultimately, the 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 constitutional court in Colombia did find in favor of the plaintiffs and ordered the government to develop a plan to stop deforestation. As I understand it, that plan of development is still underway uh, because of the political situation in Colombia. Things are difficult and because of uh, the particular politics um, of forestry management, uh, it's, it's also difficult, but that the, the court did ultimately reached this conclusion that the youth plaintiff's rights had been violated and that the um, government has an obligation to stop deforestation um, in the planning process, as many government processes do, is taking some amount of time. Okay, thank you. Um, on the Let's go back to where we started with this question on Juliana. Um, so this gets at relative to... Uh, the win for the the defense. This was sort of an article. They get into the weeds on Article Three, but we won't we won't get into that. Um, what would you say for U.S. courts, other than that case, where at one point or other cases or related cases maturing, or what's your crystal ball on U.S. court decisions on this? Say in the next two to four years. Well, I think it's in, it's worth noting climate change litigation in the United States. We have some. 1,200 or so cases in the Sabin Center's climate litigation database for the United States. Um, Juliana is one of them. Um, mm. And the vast majority of climate cases are not focused on constitutional rights. They're focused on uh, environmental impact assessment, on the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, on Endangered Species Act protections. Um, and they're taking place at all levels, at the state uh, level as well as at the federal level. Um, you know, and, and so we see a broad range of climate cases and uh, a, a wide variety of outcomes. Right now, we're seeing a lot of cases that are seeking to halt fossil fuel leasing on public lands. Uh, and this is happening in the United States as well as outside of the United States. There's a major case in Norway where... Um, environmental groups and, and individual plaintiffs are seeking to stop the government from leasing areas in the northern Barents Sea for oil and gas development, arguing that it it's runs contrary to their commitments under the Paris Agreement, as well as their, their constitutional obligation to protect um, the individual's rights to a healthy environment. Here in the U.S., um, you know, pretty much any effort that the that the Trump administration has undertaken to lease public lands in the in the American West has met with litigation, and we've seen a number of major decision, decisions shooting down um, leasing plans because of the government's failure to account 
for the climate change impacts of those of those plans. We're also seeing cases that are seeking to halt other forms of fossil fuel infrastructure, the the pieces of the of the um, system that transport um, fossil fuels or else lock in use of fossil fuels. Um, so this would include pipelines, coal terminals, airports, highways. And again, these are lawsuits that we're seeing in the United States and outside of the United States. Um, and then we're also seeing lawsuits that are seeking to mainstream climate uh, change throughout federal decision making uh, into Endangered Species Act protections and uh, listing decisions and the preservation of biodiversity into land use planning, into infrastructure planning. Um, so, you know, that's just to sort of cast the net a bit wider. And in terms of looking at the crystal ball, what's going to happen? Um, you know, I think that climate change. Uh, the science of climate change is firmly established, and we have not seen any court in the United States or in anywhere else in the world seriously question the basic elements of climate science. The idea that anthropogenic human greenhouse gas, gas emissions are causing a dramatic change in our climatic systems, leading to particular sorts of impacts, including sea level rise and global warming. Um, you know, I think that from that operating from that standpoint, we will continue to see courts wrestle with the implications of the science uh, for public health, for uh, government obligations in a variety of contexts, um, and hopefully continue to, to up the ante and and um, force more government uh, action to address both the root causes, the greenhouse gas emissions, as well as the, the needs to adapt to the impacts over time. Okay, thank you for that uh, answer, that follow-up. But uh, Michael, we're at about our, our time, so I do appreciate uh, we're having time to cover at least a broad brush, um, the administration again, efforts to unwind environmental, and then of course where we are with uh, uh, the judiciary and climate cases. So thank you for this overview. And Maybe we have time in the future to get back to any number of other issues, uh, for example, uh, carbon tax and other matters, uh, weighty matters. But thank you again. My pleasure. There's, there's, there's a ton to cover here. <laughs> Hopefully we touched some small part of it. It's a start. Thanks again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.